I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Why is the pound why did the pound initially fall? Well, that's what my former Treasury colleague Dario Perkins called the quote moron risk premium, unquote. But in a herky-jerky but dramatic matter, business moves forward, government moves forward. More important, people move forward. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So this week, China, okay, they are guilty of flagrant human rights abuses. Just look at the Rohingya Muslims or the good people of Hong Kong. But on the other side of the coin, they have dragged millions of people out of poverty. And even though they are facing a bit of a slowdown now, they have an economy that has shown amazing growth over the last decade or so at a time when the West has been sitting on its hands. So the obvious question, what can we learn from China? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So, Steve, I mean, you caused a bit of a storm uh, lately. No, never. When you, you were talking about how Soviet-era Russia didn't innovate because uh, they didn't have competitive industries, the, mm. you know, the whole central planning yep. planning approach. Uh, and one of the arguments was you couldn't innovate as quickly because they, they couldn't get all the, the resources they needed was, was part and parcel. The central planning, yeah. Yeah, with the, mm. yeah, the Iron Curtain and, and all of that. That was stopping stuff coming in. And then on top of that was... No, I heard somebody, did I? How yeah. like me. Well, no, I think on your looking on your blog, I think you you know less on the podcast, more on an article you'd written about all of yeah, this. Yeah. But I mean, that was, and yet you know, many times we've talked about how um, true innovation in the West doesn't actually come from competition from from the you know the market economy, does it? It often comes. From almost like central planning, it comes from comes from the state, comes well, from the you state. You've got a combination of, of ways in which innovation occurs. Like people, when I had the thing about the the Russian point, people said, "Oh, you know, what do you, uh, you, what about Sputnik, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Yeah. Well, my point was, it was actually consumer goods and and uh, and ordinary commodities. So you didn't get innovation in the in Russia. In uh, yes, you got innovation in things like Sputnik. Uh, the the surface. Uh, uh, surface effect aeroplanes, which they designed as part of the military. There's a wide range of innovations uh, in in parts of that system, but the 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 overall level of innovation, including a consumer what consumers got to eat uh, and, and buy, and, and just was trivial. Mm. And the reason was that the pressure on the factory system for production of mass commodities, and that's what I'm looking at, not not you know Sputnik innovations and Weapon systems and so on, but yeah, uh, the so the, the difference between yeah between and what, what in, you, innov, innov, innovation, government innovation for particular projects versus yeah. engineering the whole economy, yeah, in a way that. 
people, yeah. d- determining and, how people are going to live. And the people, the person's analysis I was working from was fundamentally a socialist economist called Janos Kornai, right. who was you know a Hungarian economist who tried to explain for himself why was it that in mass commodities innovation wasn't occurring in the East and was occurring in the West. And his the logic came down to the pressure that uh, that the uh, level of demand pressure put on you. He said in in, in the in the West, companies are demand constrained. Okay? The um, if you want to get uh, more market share, then you have to get more consumers, and therefore to get the more consumers coming in by your automobile rather than your rival's automobile, you have to innovate with the automobile. Mm. Whereas in the in the in the Soviet system, one manufacturer or you know a hand—I don't know if there was more than one—but you know this, 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 there was a state apparatus responsible for car manufacturing, and there were factories responsible for car manufacturing, and so on. And they were supply constrained because you had a, a developing economy uh, where you had massive unemployment, low productivity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, compared to the West at the time. And you therefore you had a five-year plan, and the five-year plan would say we want to expand all these different sectors, all the sectors deserve to get as, you know, the resources they wanted. There weren't sufficient resources for all of them, so they were all supply constrained. Mm. And the way to the way to make sure you have a, a, a likelihood of meeting your target production output for the five-year plan was to produce last year's model. So you didn't get innovation in mass commodities. Because you didn't need to either. You didn't need to. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, so, that pressure for innovation. So Janos's, Kornai's uh, thought was, how do we manage to get uh, the, the demand pressure cause innovation in a socialist system mm. and he never he, he, he sort of intellectually worked it out but the, the country which has worked it out in that sense is China yeah because they do accept that the market economy has to be part of it so the government can invest and innovate but mm. by and large the innovation is still coming from, from from the market economy because as you say you need that because if you're going to start selling something that's already being sold mm. you've got to do it better because there's only so many people ready to buy it yeah and um i know mean, there's an interesting range of factors as to why china didn't end up in the mess that russia's ended up in um and that was uh, the the russians if you if you go right back in the history the russians did believe that they'd overtake the west in terms of production of consumer goods yeah and that was Khrushchev banging his fist on the I table. I was told it wasn't actually about that particular issue. We, we will bury you. Okay, mm. had a different meaning. But the the belief system that the Soviets had was that they're um, building the means of production, putting the emphasis on means of production rather than uh, consumer goods, would pay long-term dividends because you would build the factories, you'd, you'd focus on the investment side rather than consumption side. But ultimately, by doing so much investment, you'd have such productive capacity, you'd overtake the West ultimately. And that was the that came out of uh, a guy called Feldman's, an engineer, uh, in the early Soviet period, was given the job of taking Marx's idea of reproduction schema and converting that into industrial development policy for for Russia. And what Feldman assumed, and this is where you know the old what is, what assumed stands for. Making an ass out of you and me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he assumed that there was a limitless supply of labour to come into the factories, which would be built to 
build the machines that made the machines, and then the machines that made the machines would make the consumer goods. So the more emphasis you put into making the, the, the in, in investment side rather than consumption, you'd have a restrained consumption to begin with, but ultimately you'd have so many factories, such productive output, you'd overwhelm the West in terms of production of mass consumer goods. Now, the failing was the assumption you had a limited supply of labour. Because what actually happened was... So you couldn't build the machines in the first place? Well, you, know, you could build you, you could build the machines initially, but once you if you if you dragged all the serfs or the ex-serfs off the fields into the factories, um, then ultimately you reached a labour constraint. So you could grow very rapidly. If you you, you if you began with, you also have nothing to eat, huh? You would also have nothing to eat. That was slight problem. But, okay, okay. <laughs> but what 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 it gave you was a there was when there was a period of of. Um, of unemployment caused for structural reasons, and that can be the aftermath of the First World War when the Soviets actually took over. It can be the aftermath of the Second World War when you had to rebuild the factories after the uh, the German demolition and so on. Um, then it was rapid, really rapid growth of the of the um, of the Soviet productive capacity. But then you hit the labour constraint. Hmm. When you hit the labour constraint, you could only grow at at the rate of either the labour force growing or your innovation. Now, if you have just had, if you had a system which encouraged no innovation, then you would grow more slowly than the West, where you had population plus innovation. So, what you the, the, the huge reason is going back for virtually fifty years. And so they hit now. a ceiling in effect. Huh? They hit a ceiling. Mm. Hit a ceiling, and therefore, once you hit the ceiling, it'll only grow at the rate of population growth, whereas the West, which still had that innovation. Advantage would grow at the rate of population plus innovation, right. and you get the wide range of goods in the West as well. So, and, and China has that as well because they have sort of they it's it's a government funded research based economy that that accepts the fact that you know there is a, a market economy fundamental yeah. that operates. So they've they're a hybrid system. Yeah, really. and it's worked. It's, yeah, it's worked extremely well. I mean, I was in China in eighty one, eighty two. And that was to run a conference on on journalism between Australian and Chinese journalists. And I literally saw the world of the Mao suit. The, the, the time we arrived happened to be when the, the trial of the Gang of Four was going on. And you know the Gang of Four? That was a boy band, okay? <laughs> People, because Madame Mao and her, his, her, her supporters after the death of Mao, and they were extreme state centralization and so on. And Deng Xiaoping managed to defeat them at that stage, and they, they were enshrined for crimes against humanity. Uh, but you then had Deng Xiaoping saying, I don't know whether it's a black cat or a white cat as long as it catches mice. The argument being is what works that matters, not an ideology. Mm. And you had a... So they weren't being as prescriptive. There no, was a, they, they, weren't, but they, they also, they did actually exploit um, American technology and American greed. Yeah. And this is what I, I found when I went to the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone. Uh, the Free Trade Zone had a rule that, that you, 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 because the, the wages in China were one-thirtieth what they were in America. So if you could say we're going to let American corporations come in and pay one-fifteenth of the wages that they paid and you know, pay people twice as much as they get locally, so they work in your factory, but one-fifteenth what you're paying in America, then you could get this huge uh, advantage. You're paying much, much less for your labour. You also had lower regulation costs to worry about as well. So mm. there's a huge increase in the profit rate for American corporations. And don't worry too much about but, trademarks or copyright or intellectual property and stuff like that. They, so they the whole, pretended the whole... to at the time. But what you also told them was so long as you have a Chinese partner who within three years, either three or five, I've forgotten now, but either three or five years the Chinese partner had to own half the business. Mm. Now that is incredible. 
uh, because it shows the huge cost advantage that existed that American corporations, even facing lose, giving away half the ownership, would actually come out substantially ahead of it. So they say, we'll take that deal. Yeah. Now, what it meant was you built a whole range of Chinese corporations and Chinese billionaires. With the know-how. With the know-how. Yeah. So they got the, the idea was to get the American technology as fast as possible and then to build a capitalist class, but a capitalist class which was beholden to the Communist Party. Yeah. Okay. So you've got this, it is a very interesting hybrid. And they did go through there that whole process of you know copycat goods as well, didn't they? Oh which yeah, was, well and true. So the Shanzai, I think it was called, wasn't it? Which was because a lot of it was uh, you know particular to one region, but it was the Shanzai uh, free trade zone. Yeah, or? yeah. That's but the they, they called it the Shanzai was what they called that whole period oh, okay. of of creating those copycat goods. Yeah. Uh, so innovating rather than copying rather than innovating, but then, but then I think in, from that they've now switched to now innovating, innovating rather than, as well. Yeah, yeah. or and more so, in fact. So it, I, I guess it's going through a phase of, of of their transition was learning how stuff works. Yeah, uh, I know one of my favourite anecdotes, I'm sure I've told it on the podcast before, but there was a Chinese delegation to Sydney and one of the uh, delegates went into the bathroom and didn't come out. And they finally <laughs> panicked and thought maybe he's had a heart attack. And so they finally opened up his cubicle and there he was taking apart the toilet to work how a double flush <laughs> toilet system works. So what you had is to, to, to become, a, to get to the top of the Chinese Communist Party, it often helped to be an engineer. Mm. So you had genuine engineers who genuinely wanted to know how stuff worked. And, and that was, I think that's a major reason again for the success of the Chinese system. Yeah, well, and look, you know, and, and it, actually you can't knock it, can you? In the, first of all, if the engineer's driving it, but also this quest to try and find out how stuff works. If the idea is, well, how do we improve on it? That yeah. gets back to the idea of, you know, that you've got to innovate yeah. to, to stay ahead. So you look at in the social media space, for example, everything is a copy. You know, there's, you know, there's... WeChat and... All, all, well, so WeChat is a, you know, you could say, well, that's a ripoff of all the other social media that exists. But it also adds things that the other ones don't have. Like the extent to, I mean, I haven't used WeChat, but my Chinese friends tell me you can do literally everything on, you can do your banking or do you... you, you yeah. It's, so it's it's much more effective. They have out-innovated the West in a lot of areas. One billion users it's got. So it's got twice the users of Twitter. Wow. So, you know, in a in a short space of time as well. And it's that whole thing about the speed at which stuff is done in mm. China as well. They just seem to get on with it. And that's like a, one of my friends was a construction uh, academic and he was raving this a decade or two ago about apparently some city in China built a skyscraper in a day. Mm. Okay, it was just the engineering that worked out. Here's, here's the, you know, they've done it with one day, but it was a ridiculously short period of time. So it's basically having engineers running stuff and saying, we want to get things done quickly. And like the, the extension to the rail at high speed rail. Well, yeah, so from 2008 to 2019, they built 25,000 kilometres of high speed rail. And here we are in the UK struggling with phase one of the HS2, which is going to take uh, longer than that. And it's going to go 230 kilometres. Yeah, yeah. It, it, so the yeah, I mean, there's not I, even a comparison. You have there. to take your hat off. I mean, whatever the criticisms you might make of the of the state system and so on, it has been an incredibly successful transformation. So that my first trip there was eighty one, eighty eighty one. Everybody was wearing mouse suits. Uh, the bicycles were, were the same bicycles I mean, you're in Amsterdam these days. Everybody was in bicycles, not cars, not motorbikes, certainly. Um, and and the the it was a peasant lifestyle. And then you, you go back, you know, the last time I went back to China was about 2018 or 17, I think, and 
holy hell, the, the, it isn't just the technological level along the Bund in Shanghai, which is remarkable. I was staying with a then girlfriend um, in a, a, a third tier city. I think it was I think it was Dayang, which is outside um, the capital of Sichuan. And the lifestyle there, and I'm just not talking her own lifestyle, but the friends she introduced me to and uh, people on the street you'd see. It was a comfortable lifestyle. It was a huge improvement of what it was in the 80, 81 period, mm. 81, 82. So uh, whatever criticisms people make of China, for whatever reason, And there's lots, like human, 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 human rights, rights and, and sweatshops and, you know, a million and one reasons yeah, you can yeah. criticise. But, but the, the, the extent to which the life the quality of life of the average Chinese mm. has risen over 30 years is stunning. Yeah. 40 years. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I uh, the reason why I wanted to talk about this yeah. today, I've been reading his, a book. His idea, by the way, people, this is, he pulled this one on me, so I'm yeah, going yeah. to well, like, Always. It's yeah, like, again, yeah. yeah. Uh, always come up with the ideas. But, but you're always welcome to get ideas from listeners as well, we should point yeah, out. Yeah, we you a few someone, yeah, yeah. yeah, so you, you just get in touch with us. But I'm reading a book by Mervyn King, who's the former uh, governor of the Bank of England. He's written a book called The End of Alchemy. I'm not very far into it, but he talked about... Well, uh, and, uh, the inspiration for the book, he said, was uh, when he met a China, China, senior Chinese central banker. Mm. So when we come back, this is the trick of the trade. Keep ah. on listening. When we come back, we'll say, uh, what exactly was it that that central bank uh, from China said to Mervyn King? King. Uh, we'll look at that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast. It's me and Steve Keane. Back in a second. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we are looking at what China does well and what can we learn from China. You know, this country that manages to get on with stuff and do it quickly. Uh, and it's driving a lot of people out of poverty while we seem to be spending a long time doing stuff and going the other way. So what can we pick up from uh, from China? Well, Mervyn King, I mentioned, uh, in his book, The End of Alchemy, uh, he met with a Chinese central banker years ago uh, who he asked how much of the, the Chinese growth story could be related to learnings from, for example, the UK's Industrial Revolution. And his reply was that China had learned a great deal from the West about how competition and a market economy support industrialization and create higher living standards. But, he said, I don't think you've quite got the hang of money and banking yet. To Mervyn King. Yeah. And that's true. 
Yeah. Okay, the West has got a stuffed idea of how banking actually occurs. So has China got the hang of it? I think better than the West has. I don't know. I mean, the the whole ideological emphasis in neoclassical economics to try to leave the banking system out of your analysis of capitalism, um, I don't think the Chinese are that stupid. Mm. So with a different ideology, you might say we need to know what is the actual... How does money actually get created? Can the state create money? Can the banks create money? If they can, we direct where the money goes. And like you saw a bad example of that in the after the global financial crisis, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, because there was a huge plunge in China's GDP that year because of a plunge in exports. And so their response was to basically tell the banks, who are largely state-owned, yes, exactly, okay, yeah. to go and lend to anybody with a pulse. Yeah. And what you had is a huge credit bubble in China, and that's why you didn't have the decline in China's GDP that you had in the West, but it was a Ponzi scheme. And now they're caught up in, you know, overpriced real estate as well. But they nonetheless, they could tell the banks to lend, and the bank says, yes, sir, to whom? Yeah. And so the finance was subservient to the state and told and, and directed to where to put its funds. But that does mean, and, and obviously, you know, we've seen all those those horror stories about, well, there's too much housing there's in the wrong places. So, uh-huh. there's you know, they've taken a punt on building towns that just nobody wants to move to. So we've got uh-huh. these sky rises that are just empty, no uh-huh. one living there whatsoever. Uh-huh. So there has been, you know, real estate failures. But that came out of the fact that because the state owns part of most banks, Yeah. Uh, you can tell but, them where to put the finance. Well, but it also they can make risky investments. You know, yeah, the banks that's can right. so- the, the, the bank won't necessarily fail, but the investment fails. Yeah, and so you get a huge amount of innovation coming out of that. And this related back to theories of innovation. I think to, to the two interesting extremes of theories of innovation are Mariana Mazzucato's work on the one hand and Bill Janeway's on the other. And Mariana focuses on what she called the entrepreneurial state. And that is definitely a case of what uh, China has done, an entrepreneurial state. Uh, But Janeway focuses upon the capacity of wealthy individuals to invest. And in both cases, what they say is that the state can afford to lose money because it can create money. And so these wealthy entrepreneurs can afford to lose money because they've got so much money. So it's actually the capacity to... The capacity to not just to lose money, but to absorb losses and continue on. That's where a lot of the finance from innovation comes from. And by understanding government money creation and state money creation, and by also running a huge trade surplus at the same time, Mm. China's managed to harness all that and do an incredible amount of innovation and industrialization in a very ridiculously short period of time. So the constraints on growth uh, for a business are... Human resources, obviously, and we uh-huh. talked about how, you know, as a whole, Russia hit that, the physical resources and finance. So, I mean, a government could fix all of that, couldn't they, by saying, well, let's allow more migration, for example, to, to try and fix that human resources issue, which they don't need to do in China because they've got so many people. They just, Rather than importing people, they just need to lift people out of poverty uh-huh. so they become a productive part of the workforce. Uh, they could say, well, let's subsidise resources and let's own the banks. And you got you got all of those things licked in that. And they case, also you? didn't go through the crazy. I mean, the, 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 one of the major reasons for the success of China in the transition was they didn't listen to the Americans, because hmm. uh, I mean, the, Russia 
did listen to the Americans and went for an incredibly rapid transition from socialism to capitalism. And some of the stuff, then I'll, I'll quote Jeffrey Sachs here, which probably annoyed Jeffrey Sachs, but I'll live with that. Um, one of, in one of Sachs's articles, he said how, in, in, arguing for a rapid transition, he said, uh, as, one, as one wit put it, uh, if you wanted to move from being on, uh, driving on the right-hand side to the left-hand side of the road, would you do it in stages, say, by moving the trucks first and the cars later? Ha, ha, ha. Well, the Chinese response to that same sort of shit from the Americans was to say, like they said, you know, you want to go from one system to another, so you've got this huge chasm and you want to leap across the chasm from socialism to capitalism. You don't want to, you know, take a step and go off the edge. And they said, well, our analogy is walking across a river. And you want to walk across a river, you want to feel very carefully for the stones to make sure you make it from one stone to the next so you don't slip off and get washed away. So the Chinese went for a gradual transition from a socialist and, and state-based enterprises to the capitalist. And, you know, with in that particular case, you can look at which, which is more successful, Russia or China, mm. hands down China. So the, the gradual transition from the from the state-owned system was far more effective than the rapid transition the Americans. But it was, for. but it was because of the acceptance of the market economy, wasn't it? Whereas Russia was trying to say, well, we, as well yeah. we're, we're going to get a, a whole load of people yeah. sitting in a room and they're going to plan the economy. Whereas China's but, but, saying, but, but, but well, let's all... let's as I said, you know, let's make employment available. Yeah. Let's make sure there's finance available. Let's make sure the resources available. Yeah. Actually, what they're available to do, well, we'll leave that for the innovators in yeah. the economy to figure but, out. But you also, I mean. When I was there, because it was, it was actually the period of transition from Mao, Madame Mao to Deng Xiaoping, and we were taken on a set of tours of different parts of the country, including being taken to a, a furniture factory in Sichuan. And the, 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 a lot of the innovation approach in the Soviet period, and I'll call Soviet for both so the Russians and the Chinese at this point was what they called trial communes. Learn from Daozhang was sort of the, I don't know the actual name, but learn from. So emulate what this particular commune is doing. So we got to this factory and they were making furniture. And my first question was, where is your market? Where do you sell to? Well, 80% of our output goes to Shanghai. Oh, why does it go to Shanghai? Oh, we have uh, we, 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 a state factory there buys our outputs. Well, how did you manage to line up the deal with the state factory? We sent out, and I'm not joking, the translation was we sent out propagandists. Okay. Okay. So, so, so I think they're called marketing people, aren't they? Marketing people, yeah, yeah. propaganda, same thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, but, but what that meant was that rather than what they imagined was each of the factories that started could also get the same success. But they said, well, if 80% of your sales are going to one factory, which is a state factory, was told to buy goods off you, then only 20% of your growth and output is feasible to expand, not the 80%. So I just saw a potential for failure mm. on that point of view. Well, that sounds like a whole Russian approach. Yeah, and I, it would have, would have fallen over in that case. Um, and, the, and the other side of the, the, the hangovers from the, the socialist side we saw in Shanghai because um, I, think, I think I've mentioned this before in, in talking about China's transition, uh, and again, the very, very early period of it, uh, there was... a the stats that came out just before I took the journalists to the tour was that heavy industry output had increased by 17%. Sorry, light, light industry 
output had increased by 17%, but heavy had fallen by 8 mm. And we couldn't make sense of the, you know, do you need heavy industry to produce light industry? How could one go up and the other go down that big a disparity? And we finally got our answer from the guy who was introduced to us as the economic boss of Shanghai. And he said, well, the Communist Party sent out a directive to promote light industry. So what did you do? Quote, unquote, in the translation, we stripped heavy industry factories and turned them into light industry. Now, that I saw as a complete failure. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that gave me hope was the experience of seeing the people in, 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 the, in the Shenzhen free trade zone. And there they were, going to get, they were going to bring American technology over from the West. They were going to force the Americans to transfer not just the technology, but also ownership of capital and create their own capitalist class. They said, this will work. So I think the combination of the export orientation plus the uh, bringing over the technology plus wanting to create their own capitalist class but keeping that capitalist class subservient to the Communist Party and then having an objective for social development as well at the level of the Communist Party itself, um, that combination has worked. And it's a form of state capitalism. And, and over that period, so from, from 1999 to 2015, mm. China's poverty rate fell from 40 point, and this is def, you know the global definition of, of poverty, which is yeah. less than a dollar ninety US dollars per day. Mm. So the rate in China fell from 40.3 percent uh, below the poverty line to 0.5 percent yeah. in that period. And that, I can uh, like 16 speak, years. Speaking as a regular tourist to China from about well, originally back in 81, 82, but then uh, quite a few times in the 2010s. Uh, you could, wherever you travel, you're just keeping your eyes out and looking at what the average people seem to be doing, like local restaurants and mm. parks and uh, people's lifestyle, quality of life has risen dramatically in China. That's, I mean, that's and they're astonishing. they're aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is a but huge... That, and obviously it doesn't happen by accident, you know, no. and, and, and that focus on... You know, trying to move people up the wealth ladder. I guess yeah. because the more you do, the more you've got that human resource that you can use for yeah. to help the economy grow as well. Whereas in the West, we are happy to see regional disparity grow. Yeah. It's going the other way here, and isn't blaming it? Blaming so, individuals for falling off the system. Yeah. So the poor get poorer, turning to food banks yeah. to survive, and wonder why the economy's not growing. Yeah. So there's there's, there's you're having a, a sort of sense of national objectives mm. and and limit trying to limit inequality and and cause innovation and choose your sectors where it occurs. Um, you know, the, the, the neoclassical way of knocking that is you can't pick winners, but what the West has done instead is pick losers. Yeah, but I mean, it's still in the West, socialism obviously is a, is a, a dirty word, uh, but, it, you know, it, it's, 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 you look at the impact it can have. Yeah, and it's, it's been successful. They said it's, it's, it's a sort of state-directed capitalism, yeah. but you don't, you, you, you certainly can't have the, uh, the old Soviet idea of uh, you know, ownership of the means, state ownership of the means of production, and uh, single producers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the Chinese have managed to work a, a very successful blend. Um, and education is part of it as well. So yeah, that, yeah. There's been a huge change in that. So in 1949, they had an illiteracy rate of 80 percent. 80 percent couldn't read or write. Now. 99% of school-aged children have a nine-year school education at the very least, and they've obviously got heavy investment going on in universities mm. as well. 4% of China's GDP is the education sector, which actually is on a par with the with, with the UK. Mm. So that is quite a move up, isn't it, from a, a, a country where 80% couldn't read or write. It's right. huge, yeah. So look, I, as much as I can be critical of China at different 
issues today, mm. I have to acknowledge that the incredible success of that period from 81, 82 through to 21, 22, like 40 years of dramatic industrialization, dramatic improvement in living standards, um, and, and a, a system which enabled both innovation by corporations, the formation of corporations, but overall a, a subservience to a state where the state saw itself of having a responsibility to the mass of its people. So um, I, wonder how, I wonder how much of it is cultural as well, because there's this, this or, or how much of it actually is, you know, what we were talking about where banks are able to take risks, but this, this ability to rapidly deploy stuff rather than getting mm -hmm. lost in bureaucracy. We have bureaucracy and the ad adversity to risk in the West, don't we? Mm. So we, you only spend money if you're absolutely 100% certain that you're going to see a return on it. Uh, and uh, and hence the bureaucracy kicks in as you try and find reasons not to do stuff, mm. whereas the Chinese way seems to be just get on with it. Yeah, get things done. I mean, there's... And I, I blame a lot of neoclassical economics on the, on the same front. The idea of it's all about the allocation of existing resources. No, it's not. It's about creation of new resources. Mm. So the, the, the static emphasis in neoclassical thinking has infected how the West thinks about getting things done. And, and, and basically the state uh, vacates its role and leaves it to a market where the market predominantly has let the finance sector rip and, and reduce the capacity of the manufacturing sector. In China, uh, the state definitely has a role. Um, it's accepted, it's, it's heavy-handed, but it's accepted at the same time because most living Chinese can see the dramatic improvement that they've been through in that period. And there's worries about a, a you know, Z leading to a, a new form of Maoism, uh, the cult of the leader type yeah, stuff. that is a worry. And that is a worry. Uh, but fundamentally, the innovation and the nation building at the same time has been successful, whereas in the West, it hasn't been about nation building, it's been about so-called efficiency. And we worry about human rights. I mean, clearly, that there are lots of human rights abuses going on in China, which we should be very worried about as well. But the Chinese culture, I mean, it's not as though these are, f f for the large part, oppressed people. I mean, they are almost leading Western values in many ways, aren't they? You know, in this consumerist society that they've built. Here's a piece, an article in Forbes. This is a few years back, before the pandemic. But it described China's customers as young and extreme. They are fast maturing, fast adopting, often e-savvy, have a forgive and forget mentality uh, and are often creating micro niches. China's young people in particular don't fit the old stereotype of placid conformists. They are device, uh, diverse, I should say, care about their peer group, yet embrace personal expression, are materialistic yet idealistic and have tastes which can be both nationalistic and international. So, you know, that's their view of where China is. So, you know, sort of like a, a forward, fairly forward thinking consumer base. That, I like that idea about the forgive and forget mentality, because, I mean, we are so scared about brand in this country. Yeah. You can't do something because it might damage the brand. If you've got a forgive and forget mentality, you might go, oh, that company created a dead product last year, but this one looks all right, so we're going to buy it. Whereas in the West, we probably wouldn't do that. So. Yeah, I mean, and I have seen that cultural side in China as well. Mm. And um, having a sense of community in a weird sort of way, even though people say, look, it's socialist, communist control from the top down and so on, there's a sense that it's an expression of an overall focus on community development rather than the individual. Yeah. Well, that and, community might be a community because they, they were talking about their, their, their diverse peer groups. So yeah. I mean, community might not be a geographic community. 
Yeah, uh, I guess if you've got 1.4 billion people. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can see a lot of people complaining about you know, ignoring the political suppression and so on. I'm aware of that as well. Yeah. Uh, equally, I'm aware of stepping over homeless people as I walk towards the railway station in Russell Square. Yes. Um, it, so the the nature of the oppression in the West is rather different to the oppression in the East. But the question is, what can we learn yeah. from China? I, and I think obviously, we learn we... a nation building focus. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that there actually is a role. Um, not so much for picking winners, but for saying we have these set of social objectives and we're going to achieve them as a role for understanding money, yeah. uh, which the West has got no effing clue about and the Chinese do understand. Which gets back to that quote from the Chinese central banker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well and truly. I mean, the naivety, the West is caught up in its own ideology without realising it. It critiques these... Chinese system because the ideology is more obvious, but the West has got this moronic neoclassical ideology that says the market will work it out, uh, and the Chinese saying, "Well, the market only sees three months in ahead." Yeah, so we need to so things like building infrastructure, yeah, funding risk ventures, yeah, uh, with with some government money sitting behind it or government support for banks so that yeah. banks are able to take And by them. having understanding of how money is created, not worrying about losing money, saying, okay, well, that was an unsuccessful innovation. Let's try the next one. All right, final point then. I mean, there's what about also having a big market? You can do stuff in China because you've got a big... That's a huge fact. I mean, it's uh, 1.4 like, billion rather than well, 65 and, million. And like I've seen some good arguments from economic geography on this front as well, that one reason why America is so much stronger than Europe as a, as, as a block is it's one between the Appalachians and the Rockies, I think it is, you've got this huge open plains. Mm. And you can just... You can, you can scale... You can move sideways um, in ways that aren't possible in Europe, where you hit the Alp, the various the the, the Alps, the the lowlands, the the geographic and the cultural diversity of Europe get in the way of it being as successful as America. Whereas China, even though it does have cultural diversity, there are definitely eighteen different major language groups, all using the same script, which is amazing. But you do have those different cultural groups. But the scale means you can spread stuff across those huge plains. So the open plains of China and the open plains of America are partly why they've been more successful than as as, as an industrial nation uh, than Europe. But that would be a reason, wouldn't it, for Europe? as a whole to say yes what well, we need imagine like we, we imagine like a, if all those countries had a trading block for example Britain, but, uh, <laughs> that, that was, was the they, they, they stuffed up on not understanding money the bloody euro yeah I mean, it, it, so yeah. The, if they had simply realized that you know, money it, it's not government money is debt is not a problem right being obsessed about government debt is is why europe tied its own but now they've gone that together. way actually if they wanted to compete against china on a not quite level playing field, it would almost have to be going the whole hog and being the United States of Europe, though, wouldn't it? Which is politically untenable. Well, the other thing, I, they could be that, but one thing I was thought it would be one of the advantages of the, of the euro is you, you 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 hop on a plane in Amsterdam, you land in Barcelona, you just hand over the same notes, or you have the same. Doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't matter these days. Huh? That doesn't matter these days. You just. You use your mobile. You, you tap your mobile. Yeah, well, you you what, don't care what, car- what, exactly, what currency it exactly. is. So yeah. what it, the thing is, it was the cost of converting currencies mm. that was the pain in the ass when you travelled around Europe. Irrelevant. In the past. You lost money in each bloody. You know you, how much you're going to lose mm. exchanging your your marks for for lira. Yeah, it was an issue. But that was the, that was the banks doing that. Though. Yeah, That's again. Good. But yeah. if you, what you could have had is that central banks of Europe collectively deciding we're going to do one for one conversions. Yeah. Okay. So you got you can land with the marks. You convert. Delivery, you lose nothing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that would have been a feasible way to have an international. But it's irrelevant. System. That's an irrelevance now, though, because you use, you, you know, there's, there's, well, yeah. they, but there's players out there where the, the cost is so yeah. little. But 
the so only, little to the, you know. Yeah. I like I use you know. I've you know, we talk about wise. If I travel in Europe, I'd just use my wise card, and I uh, do the same. And, and it's you know the the transfer cost is is next to nothing. Doesn't yeah, you know? Yeah. It's, so again, the cost of finance got in the way. Yeah, yeah. So okay, where do we finish with China then? We've got a lot to learn. Obviously, human rights is the big issue, mm. but it's the innovation and the speed and and the, and the sense of community. Mm. So you want to make you, know, you you don't just hop over the homeless people. You want to avoid homelessness in the very first instance. Yeah. Um, rather than seeing a level of social responsibility as well as individual responsibility, the West has got hung up on the idea of individual responsibility and ignoring the collective. There's where Margaret money. Thatcher said there's no such thing as society. Yeah, We're still uh, hanging on to that. I think yeah. I'll be buried that idea, uh, if not the idea of the person. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's again understanding money is a major part of it. I think Mervyn King was given a very good lecture by that by his Chinese equivalent. Well, I haven't finished the book, so I'll tell you later whether he actually learned from it or not. Not a lot. From, I have read this book. I don't think he learned a lot from it, no. Well it, well, it starts encouragingly as though he's going to reveal some sort of new way forward, but he well, doesn't. He's talking doesn't to a neoclassical economist. It's hard to get new stuff through their heads. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, well, maybe I won't bother them. <laughs> I'll finish it anyway. We might have an argument over it. Another one for another day. All Indeed. right, that's it for today. Good to talk, Steve. Catch okay, you next mate. time. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 